open book. Welcome to the Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Dina Serrano. My guest today is writer Diana Block. She's just written a new book called Clandestine Occupations, An Imaginary History. An imaginary history? Does she mean a novel? Yes, she means a novel. Clandestine Occupations. I had the opportunity to write a little blurb about the book, and this is my considered opinion about the book. Diana Block writes in clandestine occupations in a compelling, authentic voice as she follows six characters beginning in 1986 and projects into the immediate future up to 2020 through four decades of their intertwining lives. Each person's story reveals another piece of the suspenseful plot as the protests of the past inform the present and even the future. You can't stand outside this novel. It demands that readers reflect on their own lives and the intimate changes we made and are making to the swiftly moving global flow of history. Clandestine operations help us examine our personal and political interconnections and in spite of it all, our surviving capacity for love. So welcome, Diana Oh, thank you so much, Nina. That was such a beautiful blurb. When I saw it the first time, I thought, oh, she got it. She caught what I was trying to do. And uh, so I so appreciated having you write that and having it be in the front of the book. Well, I'm not the only writer to have appreciated what you wrote. You also have blurbs from the historian Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz, author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States and one of my personal favorites, and Margaret Randall, author of Sandino's Daughters and Che on My Mind, both writers who are concerned with feminist issues and world political issues. And that's what your book is about. Tell us a little about how you came to write it. Yes, as you know, but your listeners might not, I wrote a memoir a number of years ago, which was about my history as a radical social justice activist and a feminist, and my years that I spent living underground, and that was called Arm the Spirit. And after I finished writing the memoir, I realized that there were a lot of stories that I just couldn't tell in the framework of a memoir, primarily because they had confidential private aspects, and I really was very careful that I didn't want to violate people's confidentiality. So when I came to that point, I thought, well, I want to be able to tell these stories. I want to be able to tell them, but in a way that isn't limited by the kind of restrictions that nonfiction imposes. And that's when I started thinking about a novel. I have written short stories in the past. When I was younger, I probably dreamt that someday I would write a novel, but I put that aside for many years when I kind of focused my life on social justice work. 
But here now, as I am getting older, and it was the point of my life when I actually had the ability to put some time aside and do what I had dreamt of doing for many years and write this novel. And it was wonderful. It was a wonderful, liberating experience. How long did this take you? Well, altogether, it probably took a little over four years, but, you know, I am still very active. I do a lot of work with women and transgender prisoners. I have a full-time job. So I really worked the writing into my weekend hours and other times when I could squeeze it in. It didn't feel that long, interestingly enough. It felt like the words and the stories really flowed in some ways more easily than with my memoir where I had to really make sure that I was reflecting the history that was a collective history accurately. Here, I still wanted to reflect certain truths and make them seem real, but I didn't have to worry as much about it being exactly correct. You had the freedom of fiction. Exactly, and it really was freeing in many ways. Well, in this book, you take the lives of six different women and how they affect one another and how they affect generations. I wonder if you could introduce us and read us about at least one of these women. Yeah, certainly. If so not two or three. <laughs> okay, well, a couple. There are, as you said, six different women, and they span a long time, and they enter the story at different points. I'm going to choose this first woman, not because she's the most central character, but in some ways because maybe she's not the most central. It's easier to extract her story and begin talking about it from the beginning point of her journey, which she enters the story in 2007. And her name is Maggie. And the title of this chapter is Camouflage. And I can talk a little bit about that after after I read this. If he hadn't stumbled carelessly against me as I was rushing to cross the street, I might never have noticed him. I was late for my shift on the ortho ward and already irritated that Gordon had been too busy skateboarding to let me know he wouldn't be home after school. So when I felt the man's body weight slump onto mine, I almost shoved him rudely away before I saw his day-glow orange uniform and the chains shackling his feet. If I had pushed him, he would have crumbled downward, helpless, on the pavement below. Sorry, miss, Clay here seems to have lost his balance. The man in the crisply ironed olive green uniform and buff black shoes was tugging on Clay in a clumsy misplaced effort to get him upright on his feet. Clay was staggering, trying to stabilize himself, but I could tell immediately from his labored breathing and the sweat rolling down the dark wrinkles of his face that the stumble was caused by more than his chains. I think he needs to sit down, not stand up, I said, and began to help Clay settle himself on the curb of the sidewalk. When the guard seemed to hesitate about following the instructions of a small, non-uniformed woman regarding his prisoner, I added in my most commanding voice, I'm a nurse, and flashed my ID badge at him. This man may be having a heart attack, and we need to call the ER across the street to come and get him. That seemed to shake Mr. Olive Green up a little. 
I wasn't sure about the heart attack, but I imagined that this burly guard wouldn't want to explain a death on his watch. Okay, I guess. He has an appointment with some other department. He fumbled for a paper in his pocket. Maybe my partner has the paper. He he went to get some food at the cafeteria, which is why I'm here by myself. We usually escort the inmates in teams, you know. He was explaining this to me as if I were the supervisor he might have to justify things to back at the jail. Neurology. Clay's breathing had calmed down enough for him to talk. His voice was gravelly but surprisingly deliberate. I have an appointment with a neurology specialist because I've been having trouble with my balance lately. Abruptly, I realized that I hadn't talked directly to the man himself before he spoke. He was an orange-suited inmate, and I had chosen to communicate with the commander in Olive Green instead. I appreciated that Clay wanted to take authority over his own condition. Thank you. Can you tell me what has been happening lately? I didn't want to do an intake interview, but now that I had heard his voice, I needed to know what he had to say. Despite his distress... Clay quickly described his history of severe headaches, visual impairment, nausea, and increasing frequent falls that had been ignored for more than two years. He left the accusation of malpractice unstated. I was drawing my own conclusions when the ER team arrived. Thank you, Miss Rafferty, Maggie Rafferty. Only when Clay grabbed my hand to say goodbye could I feel the clawing panic beneath his sharp clinical observations. I will check on you later, Clay, I told him as the guard was pulling him away. I work in orthopedics, but I'll try and come down and see how you're doing later on. So that's the beginning. Of, wow. this, of this little episode, and it's a story that actually grew out of a lot of my current experience working in a hospital and seeing an increasing number of prisoners in orange day-glow uniforms being brought in, shackled over the years, and being just profoundly disturbed as to what that meant and the fact that almost nobody ever paid attention to it at all when, as I walked down the corridors, people would essentially look away or look up or look down or look around, but nobody would look at the prisoner themselves and certainly not at their chains. And well, in this story, we get a good look at that prisoner. And is he pivotal in the story? This prisoner isn't, but prisoners in general are. I mean, the novel itself has a lot of focus on what is being commonly called now mass incarceration and the ways in which mass incarceration permeates our everyday lives at this point. And actually, you know, four and a half years ago when I started writing it, I really wanted to make that point. And as I wrote it, it seems like the kind of public awareness has at least a little bit caught up with the theme of some of the stories, because now people do, you know, they hear the term mass incarceration and Barack Obama is talking about it. And so in a certain way, I feel like it's very timely in trying to express some of these things. And it's it probably is something more people can identify with now that the terms have become more popular. So what other character can you introduce us to? The story has a lot of complications, a lot of complicated interweavings among the different women and the different generations. 
One of the women in the book is someone who has been disillusioned about political activity. She was in many ways, she's a, of the 70s, 60s and 70s generation, and she was not treated very well by her movement colleagues. And this is a phenomenon that, of course, many of us who have lived for a while and have lived through different eras of the movement have, you know, observed, participated in. And I really wanted to talk about that from a both sympathetic point of view, but also from the point of view of what happens to people who get burnt out and cynical and yet have this piece of them that is really still outraged by what's going on and yet have no way of expressing it. Anyway, that woman, Sage, has a daughter and her name is Annis. And the daughter reacts to her mother's cynicism and disillusion. And the way she reacts is by wanting to get to know some of the heroes of the, of the past, some of the icons, some of the people who are political prisoners. And one of the people that Annis wants to explore, investigate, is living in a prison right near San Francisco. And so this young woman, Annis, decides to go and visit the political prisoner whose name is Cassandra and do her senior thesis on Cassandra. And that's sort of the setup of how that relationship begins. And so I can read a little bit of the beginning of that chapter. When is the year of this event? This one begins in 2010. So we're moving forward. We're not quite into the future yet. And it's called Release. And it's the person speaking is this young woman, Annis. Your limp was the first thing I noticed about you, Cassandra, as you walked into the visiting room. You limped deliberately toward me, angling your body ever so carefully through the narrow spaces between the tables overloaded with chips, candy bars, and soda. I guess I had expected you, a white woman who had once escaped from prison, to be one of those take-charge striders like the towering Drucker woman on the poster on my mother's bedroom wall, tramping fearlessly across the city, hair flowing, arms and legs swinging wide, overshadowing the skyscrapers in the background, stomping through everything in her way. But you stepped cautiously, as if one false move could cause a mass chain reaction spill, a dangerous cascade of junk food overturning one table and then the next until all the grease and sugar landed smack, splattering at the feet of the two imperial guards sitting in command at the front of the room. When you finally got to where I was sitting on the way back, as far away from them as I could get, you said my name, Annis, and got it right the first time, unlike most people who make it rhyme with peace or release. Then you extended your hand in an assured, graceful motion that made me think that you had probably once walked with that same elegance. You look like your pictures, I said, even though I was thinking how faded you seemed compared to the glamorous woman in the books and magazines I had unearthed at the San Francisco State Library, even in the posed pictures taken in prison, you had looked fashionable. Your hair was cropped close and sharp around your high cheekbones. Your hoop earrings dangled beneath your sunglasses, and your shirt and jeans fit just right. 
You could have been out on the street rather than posing behind bars. But here, in person, you looked like an inmate, dressed like every other woman in the room, with a loose tan shirt hanging shapeless over beige pants. Your hair hung listless down the sides of your head, hiding its striking shape. I wondered whether you were able to get conditioner in prison and how often you could take a shower or if you could buy the kind of lotion that could heal the cobweb cracks under your eyes. Not the kind of questions I had come here to ask you, but the pad with the ones I had written down to start this interview were locked in a steel case in the visitor processing room, along with my forbidden pen. You just heard Diana Block reading from her new book, Clandestine Occupations, An Imaginary History. So, Diana, where can people get this exciting book? Well, the best place that for sure is through my publisher, PM Press, and they are, as many people may know, local, a wonderful radical press right here in the Bay Area. And if you go online and to go to pmpress.org, they will get you a copy very quickly. They are very good about mailing out copies. They are also available at various bookstores, but, you know, due to the people buying them, and I, I don't know which bookstore to recommend the most. So I think PM Press is the most reliable way and supporting independent publishers is also a great thing to do. Well, thank you so much. This is a really beautifully written book that I enjoyed immensely and especially because it speaks to the interconnectedness uh -huh. of people, how our lives really affect one another and they do so for generations. So right. it's really interesting that you allowed your book to flow into the future because that's where all the possibilities lie. Exactly. So exactly. thank you so, so much. Thank you, Nina. Thank you for having me and appreciating it in the poetic voice that you bring to all the work that you do. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Poet Andrina Zawinski born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, has been living in the San Francisco Bay Area for several years. Her poetry reflects a concern for the human condition, especially that of the worker and women. Zawinski has been Features Editor at PoetryMagazine.com, a popular digicene since 2000. She organized and runs a women's poetry potluck and salon that has been a popular social network for Bay Area women poets for over three years. Zawinski also teaches writing at Laney College in Oakland. She'll be reading from three collections, Traveling in Reflected Light, a Kenneth Patchen Prize in Poetry book, Taking the Road Where It Leads, an honors chapbook, and Something About, a 2010 Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Award winner. Welcome, Andrina. Thank you so much for having me here. You're widely published and often in poetry readings, but I don't know that you've been on KPFA before, so this is a treat. I have not, and it's a great honor. Well, you have with you many poems, and let's use this opportunity to hear them. What would you like to begin with? I would like to read the title piece of my book, Traveling in Reflected Light, that came out through Pig Iron Press in Youngstown, Ohio, as a Kenneth Patchen Award winner in 1995. This poem is inspired by Lewis McNeese's snow. It's called Chiaroscuro for Reflected Light. 
Sometimes the way the light moves in and spins the chime of porcelain gulls to streak across the drawn and muted shade, I'm taken back beneath the tinsel rain on waves that ebb out to the sea. Sometimes the way the light slips through an uncaught crack beneath the frame before a freeze, all arms and legs I forage angels from a driven snow and laugh out loud at winter running wild again. Sometimes, when light ruffles edges of paper slips, notices of the half-done things, it comes in and travels dream, the back road country looming large behind the pen, in all things touched and yet to be. Sometimes so brilliantly dazzling resplendent, the mere delight in light will swell the room, and I can see that there is more than a squint of dusty glass suspended between the sun and the shade. I'd like to read another one that comes out of a place of my childhood. It's called Sleepless Night at Summer's End. The crickets can keep you awake, like an old rocking chair loose on the rails. The 1045 CSX can slice the night, scraping west from Altoona, and howling the bridge above Glade Run Creek, where Mohawk and Cree once cut a path. But what can a woman do out in Rockwood? She can put out salt lick and apple for white-tailed deer, Pick a bouquet of goldenrod and sweet joe pie from uncut fields. Stake a roadside stand with old brick-a-back brack. Get her hair done at Bonnie's Salon. Have dinner down at McDivitt's. Pull a daily wage at Tinky's Lumber, where the limestone works in Milford or Somerset. Set up a satellite dish for city stars to come in. But at night, alone in Rockwood... She can't keep nosy moonlight from creeping in the cracks where she props a loaded shotgun at the bedroom door. Can't help thinking. A woman's scream could be caught here, like a firefly in an airtight jar, dulled by lightning at summer's end, storming the walls. You just heard Andrina Zawinski reading her original work. That was beautiful, Andrina. I find in reading your book, the latest one, something about that as I read these poems, they almost become a novel because I start filling in between poem one and poem two and three, those spaces in between, I start filling in your life. They're like signposts of what's going on in your life and in the world around you. And I find that very exciting, and especially since you write so beautifully. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a great compliment to me. So what are you going to read us now? Oh, you're going to read from something about... Something about, which is from Blue Light Press, Altarpiece. Children empty the mother's house of her, muscles aching from the weight of her loss held in their arms so close to their hearts. Light a candle for them. Neighbors bemoan an old man lost just blocks from his home. No one ever reported him missing. Pray on beads for them. Strangers, heads darting this way and that, circle a young man on the tracks who slipped into a heap crossing the street. Petition the saints for them. Light a candle for them. Light a candle for girls who gave birth in the dark the way they conceived, buried stillborns in deep graves of grief. Bury your face in your hands for them. And for the parents whose children fell to open school ground fire, who uprooted wither upon the blood-soaked earth, lay down wreaths of marigolds for them, ring bells for them, ring bells for women pack at the heels with knife, brick, and pipe who dropped in the dark, wrapped into sleep, then forgot, cover the mirrors for them, 
Ring bells for the men who balk at the buck of the rifle butt. Drop guns and run. Rogues cast out from the pack. Race flags for them. Free doves for them. And for those with bodies bound by rope, throats gagged with rags, backs strapped and lashed, their cries silenced, open a window for them. Deliver ablations for them. For all the apocalyptic visionaries who leapt to their ends from bridge rails or slept drunken on fumes in the room in a blanket of death. Burn incense for them. Sing chants at altars you create for them. Carve their names deep into stone you erect to them. Let their ashes take wings on the wind for them. Do you have another poem? One more to end on? Yes. This one is called The Pickers, and I use an epigraph from Charles Wright's Against the American Grain. Stronger and stronger, the sunlight glues the afternoon to its objects. The Pickers, back bent and dozens abreast, rise before the sun, past the blonde grasses behind the concertina wire, running between Soledad and Salinas, move in squats, toss artichokes from sun-pucked fields into pickup cabs, calloused fingers pricked by the thorny thistles. They pour seeds into rivulets of dry earth that will burst into lettuce, charred the great bouquets of broccoli and cabbage along El Camino Real's humpback hills, where foremen watch, arms folded across their dusty boredom, and the long light of days stretching inside another summer, bodies at work, long after limbs tire, long after chests heave beneath bird bone beads, abalone shells, scapulars dangling from red strings, or even chains of gold glinting off the sun, faces muffled in scarves and hoods, sweat scenting the air, backbent and dozens abreast, birthing a history of earth. And so they move, the pickers, silhouetted against the horizon, westerly winds crossing groves and vineyards farther north, farther south. They move, follow the crops, follow the seasons, Steinbeck's ghost among the harvest gypsies, pen in one hand, pale in the other, working toward some end. As sure as low clouds cool the day down, the bodies turn toward evening, lay down the ache of the field in the stretch of legs, slope of shoulders, move toward dreams of the unburned, pain-free, unafraid, unspent paper in the pocket for some half-hold on a home on the road, birds skittering tree branches at sunset, pecking at the unpicked. You just heard Andrina Zawinski, and to reach her, you can go to Andrina, A-N-D-R-E-N-A dot Zawinski, Z-A-W-I-N-S-K-I, and she's at A-T-T dot net. Thank you so much, Andrina. These were beautiful poems. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to read them to your audience. Well, it was a great pleasure for me, and I'm sure for the audience. Thank you. This next poem is by me, Nina Serrano. The Liberator There is always one who is many, 
gathering to plan an escape back to freedom. Freedom of the hunt, the gathering of reeds for baskets and berries for lunch, the songs, the familiar ceremonies, healings and prayers of free people, not slaves to work and more work. A strange language in unpleasant ways, free to shout and dance the joy of mornings, moons marking our moments. We leave tonight, and if they come after us, they will meet traps and tricks and deadly arrows. This has been Nina Sverno with Jill Montgomery for the Poet to Poet series. Please check out my website, ninaserrano.com, to hear other programs, poems, and a listing of my upcoming events. Thanks for listening. KPFA's Holiday Fundraiser starts on Tuesday, December 8th and ends Friday, December 18th. During this time, we invite anyone to come into our phone room and volunteer their time, answering calls and taking pledges. No experience is necessary. During the week, our phone room opens at 6.30 a.m. and 7 a.m. on weekends. Snacks, coffee and tea will be provided. Please visit the brand new KPFA website for more information about volunteering at KPFA at www.kpfa.org.